um, was a guy called Blaise Pascal back in the uh, back in the 17th century. He was a he was a mathematician, a philosopher. Um, he, he said, "Everyone, without exception, is searching for happiness." Um, I, I reckon that's just as true today, isn't it? So it's it's not like um, it's not like everyone used to search for happiness back in the 17th century, but now we've found the secret, and, and so we don't need to bother looking for it anymore. It's not like that, is it? Humanity still chases it today, don't we? Fulfillment, satisfaction, contentment, happiness, call it what you will. It, it's something that, that everyone wants and, and, and searches for. The, um, I was thinking about different songs in the week that express this, because the songwriters know about it, don't they? The Eurythmics, I remembered, sang about it in the, in the early 80s. Sweet dreams are made of this. Who am I to disagree? I travel the world and the seven seas. Everybody's looking for something. They, they, they understood, uh, didn't they, that there's this, this, there's this deep longing in us for contentment, and, and yet it's elusive. We, uh, we, we search for it. The Rolling Stones sang about it in the 60s, I can't get no satisfaction, though I try and I try and I try and I try. Or you 2 sang about it in the 1980s, famously, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Uh, we, we want it, but it's elusive. Um, and, and it kind of leaves us with a, with, a, with a bit of an aching void inside us, an, an emptiness. Uh, Peter Gabriel sang, days passed and this emptiness fills my heart. Um, and, and some of us get that. Uh, don't we? There's this void inside, this longing for fulfillment and satisfaction, but it's elusive. Um, and, and not only is it elusive, but, but we're not even sure where to really find it, which is why we look in so many different places. Um, Taylor Swift, here you are, I'm a bit more up to date. Taylor Swift sang about it about a decade ago. I don't know what I want, so don't ask me because I'm still trying to figure it out, she wrote. I'm just a girl trying to find a place in this world. And of course, the reason that all the songwriters and and musicians, they sing about it, is not because that that sort of quest for contentment is unique to them, but because it's actually common to humanity. We all chase satisfaction because we all feel the the same sense of dissatisfaction. Um, And yet it's elusive. We don't find what we're looking for, what we crave. And, and actually, it's somebody just like that, I think, that um, somebody on this quest for satisfaction that we meet in our passage this morning, where, where this woman at the well, though she tries and tries and tries and tries, she still can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> she still hasn't found what she's looking for. And, 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 and what I think fabulous about this episode is, is that Jesus, in a very tender, very gentle, very compassionate way, exposes her real need. Jesus wants to show this woman that she can be satisfied and and fulfilled at the deepest level. She can find what she's looking for in the person of Jesus Christ and actually only there. And friends, that is such good news for you and me right now at Christmas. Because Christmas, you know, when you, when you strip away all the, all the trappings that we, we, uh, we allow to hijack it, Christmas is a time to remember that Jesus Christ has come. So, you know, that, that, that as, as chapter 1 of John has, has told us, the Word 
has become flesh. The word which John tells us is a, is a title for Jesus, um, uh, Jesus as the very revelation of God. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us. In, in other words, the baby in the manger is none other than God himself, come to reveal himself to us by becoming one of us. That's what Christmas is all about, isn't it? It's about the fact that in the person of Jesus, God has come. He's come to us. And, and, and as we've kind of dipped in and out of these early chapters of John over the last few months, uh, you, you'll remember that John's been showing us that Jesus is God in the flesh. We've seen that in chapter 1. He's come as the promised king, the Messiah or, or the Christ. He's come in order to bring in his kingdom. A, a kingdom that's pictured in chapter 2 like a, a, a wedding feast, a wedding banquet to end all banquets. And he's come as a king who, 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 is, who has come not only with authority to judge, but actually to, he's come to bring in a whole new way of knowing God and of being made right with God. So, so if he's come to bring in his kingdom, well then who gets into his kingdom? Chapter 3 has told us it's those who are born again. You remember he said that to, to Nicodemus. Um, those who are born again by God's spirit get into God's kingdom as they believe in the Lord Jesus, as they, they place their trust in him and his work on the cross to, to save them, to rescue them. And, and now as we kind of head into chapter 4, John is going to uh, sort of press in a bit more deeply on who gets in to God's kingdom. And, and he's also uh, going to help us to see what does Jesus want from us and whether we can see it yet. So that's what we're going to be looking at as we get ready for Christmas over the next few weeks. Christmas reminds us that Jesus has come, but who for and what does he want and can we see it? And, and this week, uh, in, in our passage this morning, verses 1 to 18 there, it's the kind of, it's the who for question that I think John wants us to see. Jesus has come, but who for? And, and this is going to be good news for, for us, um, because you might have noticed that so far, Jesus has only been talking with Jews, might have picked that up. So, so does this mean that, you know, uh, he's just the king of the Jews? That, that his rescue plan uh, 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 that he's come to bring is, is just for Jewish people, or, or is it bigger than that? Well, we'll see the answer to that um, in, in this passage, because Jesus is now heading into non-Jewish territory, uh, this, this region of Samaria that you can see in, in verse 1. So let's have a look at these verses where, where John shows us, I think, two things. Firstly, a liberating truth. So he tells us a liberating truth. But then he asks us a searching question. Have a look at verse 1 and, and I think a liberating truth. You, you'll notice that the fact that Jesus is, is making, baptizing more disciples than John. We, we saw that at the end of chapter 3 a few weeks ago. That's kind of causing the temperature to raise a bit, in, in, probably with the Pharisees, I think. Um, and so he leaves Judea. He heads for Galilee, but he does so via Samaria. And Samaria was, was an area occupied by Samaritans, um, who, who were, the Samaritans were a mixed race and a mixed religion community. In other words, they, they weren't sort of pucker Jews. 
Okay, they weren't, they weren't proper Jews, uh, as it were. They started life uh, uh, as part of the nation of Israel, but, but back in their history, about 700 years uh, previously, they'd been invaded by the Assyrian Empire with whom they'd intermarried, which had brought about not only a, a mixed race community, but a mixed religion community. And the result was that they were kind of looked down on. Um, they, they, were, they were treated with disdain by their Jewish neighbours. But Jesus, look, verse 4, has to pass through Samaria. We're not told exactly why he has to. Some people have suggested it's just because that was the the quickest route, the shortest route uh, to get to Galilee, which it was. Um, But but, but others point out as well that Jesus may have had like a divine compulsion, uh, as it were, to take the gospel there. So he, he had to go. Um, and I'm, I'm certain that that's true uh, as well. This appointment with the woman at the well is certainly not a coincidence on Jesus' part, isn't it? it but but he's, he's traveling through. It's about noon. That's the, the sixth hour, verse six. So kind of the heat of the day is, is at its peak. Uh, Jesus is tired from his journey. Uh, and so he arrives in this town of Sychar, verse five, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, where Jacob's well was. Uh, and so he decides it's time to take a break. And, and while his disciples hurry off to get some food, look, verse seven, Jesus goes and he sits by the well and he asks this Samaritan woman who's come to draw water from the well if she could get him a drink. So let's kind of listen in to, to the conversation that that now develops. So Jesus asks her to get him a drink, verse uh, 7, to which she replies, look, verse 9, why do you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And, and you'll notice that, that John here puts a little explanatory note at the end of the verse there to say Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans, which is quite an understatement. <laughs> um, in other words, she's really surprised that he's asked her, and, and he's broken several kind of ethnic and religious taboos in, in, in doing so. The, the, the Samaritans, although, as I say, they had their roots in, in, in Judaism, that they'd integrated some of their uh, uh, religious practices that they'd inherited, which made them, in, in religious terms, as far as the Jews were concerned, impure uh, or, or unclean, uh, such that Jews wouldn't even consider it acceptable to share the same utensils with a Samaritan. And, and, and to do so would be to become ceremonially unclean. And yet here is Jesus asking to have a drink from one of them. Also, Jesus, as a, as a rabbi, as a teacher, should not have even been speaking to a woman in public. It was, it was considered improper. It was forbidden. Yet here is Jesus speaking to her. So, so we're meeting Jesus the revolutionary again here aren't we? The one who breaks through the, the ethnic and the religious and the gender divides in order to reach out to this woman. And friends, that is the Jesus of the Gospels, isn't it? The, the Jesus who, as you, as you read through the, the four Gospels, is regularly to be found in conversation with, with non-Jews. Indeed, he's the, he's the Jesus who tells the parable that makes the Samaritan the hero of the story, if you remember, He's the Jesus who spends considerable time talking with women and who, in fact, is also heavily criticized by the the religious leaders of his day, the great and the good, for the amount of time he spends with those who would be considered the dregs of society, the sinners. But that is the Jesus of the Gospels. 
in, in the world of the first century, with its, with its bucket load of, of, of religious rules and, and taboos, Jesus is actually like a real breath of fresh air, isn't he? He, sh- he shows a deep and real concern for all kinds of people. But, but John here, look, as he writes this account, I think he wants to make an even more significant point than that as he records the surprise of this woman. Because, if you remember, the last person whose conversation with Jesus John records for us couldn't be more different from this woman, could it? Do you, do you remember who it was from, from the beginning of chapter 3? few weeks back it was Nicodemus wasn't it Nicodemus was a Pharisee you know he was a he was a devoted uh, religious man he was the ruler of the Jews so so a member of the Jewish ruling council and, and he was a Pharisee he was he was very uh, devoted um, uh, he was a, a teacher of Israel so a scholar uh, an, an educated man so he's he's your true blue Jew is uh, is Nicodemus isn't he he's religious he's moral he's he's educated he's powerful um, he's exactly the kind of person you might expect Jesus to be found talking with. But now here in chapter 4, he, he's not talking with a Jew, but with a hated Samaritan. And he's not talking with a man, but with a woman. And therefore not with an educated uh, scholarly person, but with an uneducated one, because their society didn't educate women. And and not with a respected pillar of the community, but actually with somebody considered an immoral kind of woman. Verse 18, she had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. In other words, she was, as we would have said, living in sin, if you like. So the contrast between these two people couldn't be greater, could it? And, And I think John kind of puts these two characters next to each other in his gospel because he wants us to see that Jesus has come to be the saviour of everyone who will believe in him. And, and actually, that's exactly the conclusion that lots of people in Samaria did come to. We'll, we'll see this later uh, in the chapter in a few weeks' time. But if you sneak a peek uh, at the end of verse 42 of chapter 4, you can see there their conclusion. We have heard for ourselves and we know that this is the saviour of the world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, isn't that so good to know that entry into the kingdom of God is for anybody and everybody who believes in Jesus. Um, maybe you've had conversations with people like, like, like I have, where people say, Steve, this, you know, this Christianity thing, it's not for people like me. Je- Jesus isn't going to be interested in someone like me. I've not lived a good life. I've, I've not lived a moral life. I, I've got no religious background. I, I, to be honest, I feel a bit out of place in a church building. I've not been particularly into religion. I'm just not sure Jesus would bother with someone like me. Well, Jesus knocks that idea on the head here, doesn't he? John wants us to see that the kingdom of God is not just for the Nicodemuses of this world, you know, the the respectable religious types. It's for every kind of person, regardless of gender, ethnicity, cultural background, religious background, educational background, moral background. There is room in the kingdom of God for everybody who puts their trust in Jesus, no matter who you are or what you've done. That's a liberating truth, isn't it? And and the conversation here is just getting started, really. 
and, and look, there's, there's more, because Jesus says, give me a drink. Uh, the woman says, how come a Jew like you is talking to a Samaritan woman like me? Uh, to which Jesus replies, look, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, that is a kind of indirect answer to her question, isn't it? She wants to know, why are you talking to someone like me? And he replies, effectively, well, it's because I've got something for you. I've got the gift of God for you, verse 10, a, a gift which he then calls living water. And, and he's using the phrase living water as a metaphor, of course, isn't he? Water is a, a symbol of life. Of course, you, you need water. If you're going to have life, everything does. We do. Um, and they're standing by a local well. You know, she's come to draw water for herself. He's asking her for a drink of water. All the talk's been about water. So he uses the same language to talk about the gift of God. In other words, God's Holy Spirit who comes and lives within us in order to give us life, life to the the full, spiritual life, life that, that satisfies our deepest thirsts. Uh, you can see this uh, in verse 13 and, and 14, where, where Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, the, the, the water in, from the well, they'll be thirsty again, because it's just water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, this, this living water, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see? In other words, the, the, the water from the well here, that's, that's just like a quick fix. That won't satisfy. You'll, you'll drink it and before long you'll be thirsty again. But the water that is to be found in me, my, my spirit and the life that he gives, that'll be like a spring of it inside you. And it'll be so eternal and satisfying and thirst-quenching that you'll never need anything else again. And, and I, I wonder whether you can see the, the similarity again with, with Nicodemus back in, in chapter 3. If you remember, Jesus was talking to him, wasn't he, about the, the gift of God's Spirit and the eternal life that he brings using the language of, of being born again, wasn't he? And here in chapter 4, he's talking to the Samaritan woman using a different metaphor, but talking about the same need. And, and, and do you see the point? His point is that whether you're a, a respectable, educated, religious type like Nicodemus, or whether you're a despised and uneducated and irreligious type like the Samaritan woman, your deepest need is exactly the same. Jesus says you need the gift of God. You need his spirit like a spring inside of you that wells up to give you thirst-quenching, satisfying life in him. And, and Jesus has come in order that both kinds of person, and indeed any kind of person, may have that living water. That is a glorious and liberating truth, isn't it? But John doesn't only want to tell us a liberating truth. I think he wants to ask us a searching question, which is whether you've discovered that yet. Have you discovered that? See, the problem for the woman here 
is that she hasn't. She doesn't know who Jesus is. And so she doesn't understand the gift of God that he's come to bring, which is why Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that he's saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And and friends, if if you've been here uh, over the last few months as we've kind of dipped in and out of of the Gospel of John together, you might have gathered by now that John has gone to great lengths in these chapters to explain, to prove who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh. He is God's coming king, come to bring salvation and, and life in him. But the woman here, she doesn't have a clue, does she? Have a look at uh, verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and, and the well is deep. Where, where do you get that living water? Are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and, and, and his livestock. She really hasn't got it. Has she? How are you going to get this living water, Jesus, when you haven't got a rope and a bucket? How's that going to work? And as we read it, we, <laughs> we kind of want to say, Duh, it's frustrating, isn't it? Well, you're making daft comments like that for you've got the Son of God sat in front of you and the water he's offering you is life in in him um, and and you're banging on about not having a bucket to draw it with. What's wrong with you? Why don't you get it? And and, and if we've read those earlier chapters of John, we've seen who Jesus is and, and why he's come. It's kind of frustrating, isn't it? That the woman here, she doesn't see it. But friends, she's not alone. Of course, Jesus has made it clear there are people who hear God's word and reject it. But there are also many people who who haven't yet responded to Jesus' message simply because they haven't heard it and understood it. You know, we can all get, can't we, so caught up with all all the daily stuff of life that we don't even take time, make time to think about the big questions of, of life. And, and it means that we, you know, very easily can become just as clueless as, as this Samaritan woman here. And friends, that, that's a problem for her, and it's a problem for us too, because Jesus says, if you knew who I was and understood the gift that I'm offering you, you would ask me for it and I would give it to you. That's the gist of what he's saying, isn't it? And you know, friends, it seems to me that that many people who reject Christianity are not rejecting the the message of Jesus in the Bible. They're rejecting a caricature of it. And a caricature that I don't blame people for rejecting because I'd reject it too. They're rejecting what they think Christianity is all about without ever having actually read a gospel with someone and and had it explained to them who Jesus really is, what what his message is all about, and exactly what faith in him means. Um, It's a bit like a lot of the stuff that seems to pop up in my social media feed. I don't know whether you're like me. I just get amazed at how many people seem to express such strong opinions about subjects they actually know very little about. And if John here is is right, if he's right in his book about who Jesus is and the living water, the new life that he's come to bring, then that is not something we want to reject without being properly informed about, is it? In other words, friends, let's not reject the real Jesus and miss out on life in him 
on the basis of a caricature of who he is and, and a parody of his message. But rather, go to, the, go to the source documents and see it for yourself. And, and, and you know, if we're, if we're already convinced, a lot of us, are, we're Christians here this morning already, let the Jesus of the Bible be the Jesus that we share with others as well. Let's be those who are equipped and ready to explain this Jesus to those that we know in in the confidence that there are many others in today's world as well who, verse 10, if they simply knew the gift of God and who Jesus really is, then they would ask him and he would give them living water. Because you see, the claim of Jesus here, as, as we've seen, is that this living water that he offers will satisfy like nothing else. Because it's like a spring of water, verse 14, that wells up inside you to eternal life. Life with God. Life forever. And you see, that's the key here. What Jesus claims to offer us here is to be restored to the God who made us to know him and be with him forever. See, friends, the, the, the message of the Bible is that there is a God who made each one of us uniquely and individually. And he's made us in order to know him and be in a relationship with him and, and to thrive as people only in a relationship with him. That's how God's designed us to flourish. And, and this woman here, she doesn't know the God who made her. She's living in his world, but she's living without him. And Jesus has come to restore that relationship between her and God and give her life, eternal life, with him. You know, we, we mentioned at the beginning, didn't we, that longing for fulfillment, for satisfaction, that, that we, we chase in all sorts of different ways. And it seems so elusive, that that, that feeling that the songs express, you know, that we can't get no satisfaction, though we try and try and try, that we sail the world and the seven seas, always looking for something, that, that restlessness, that elusive quest for contentment and, and fulfillment. And we look for it in a variety of different places, of course. We turn to pleasure don't we? But there's never enough of it. We turn to work and, and make our occupation into our preoccupation. We turn to relationships, but we find they don't satisfy either. We turn to money, but it's in short supply. We make a God out of the way that we look, but we find that inevitably that fades. We, we turn to entertainment. You know, Paul, Paul Simon wrote, the people bowed and prayed to the neon God they'd made. That's what we do, isn't it? We look for satisfaction in any number of different places. Some of them good, some of them not so good. But ultimately, they fail to satisfy. They cannot deliver what only the true and living God can. That which is only available in knowing him. So it's not surprising that we don't find it. And, and as Peter Gabriel put it, the days pass and this emptiness fills our hearts and friends it's nothing new of course uh, back in the fourth century we we read of another guy just like us a guy who chased after satisfaction 
He looked for it in sex and drink and learning and philosophy. But still, it was so elusive. Until he discovered Jesus in the pages of the Bible. His his name was Augustine. And and what he eventually came to realize was what he rather famously prayed. Oh God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And, And then centuries later, another man found the same thing. This was a 20th century author, journalist, Malcolm Muggeridge. Some of you will perhaps remember him. He was on the TV a bit back in the day. But he came to faith in the Lord Jesus and and then wrote these words. He said, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the, the higher slopes of the internal revenue or the inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It it might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing. Less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draught of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. What, I ask myself, does life hold? What is there in the works of time, in the past, now and to come, which could possibly be put in the balance against the refreshment of drinking that water so friends whether you identify with with nicodemus in chapter three uh, the the respectable religious pillar of the community or whether you identify with this woman the the unrespectable irreligious despised outsider and whatever you've looked to in the past for satisfaction and contentment what john wants you to see here in this run-up to christmas when we remember that jesus has come is that jesus has come to offer you living water, to know personally the God who made you as you turn and trust in the work of Jesus on the cross, whose death in your place has purchased for you that relationship with God that Jesus offers. And that is the only thing that truly satisfies. So can I ask you, have you discovered that yet? If, if you have discovered it, let it lead you to, to, a, to a continued life of, of grateful praise and thanks for such a gift. And a life that tells others how they might find it too. And you know, as we look ahead to the Christmas services, two nativity services, two carol services, where, where the good news of life in Christ and entry into his kingdom will be heard. What great opportunities they are, aren't they? To invite those you know to come and find this living water. Friends, do use that time well to show others the amazing gift of God. And if you haven't discovered it for yourself yet, you know, if perhaps you're still where the Samaritan woman is here, 
who still doesn't get it. And so says in verse 15, give me this water, sir, so, so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. If it still hasn't clicked into place for you like it hasn't for her. Please don't reject him on the basis of a caricature of his identity and message. But rather, keep coming. Keep reading John. Maybe sign up for a Christianity Explored course. Keep coming until you discover him and his living water for yourself. Shall I pray for us? Let's pray. Father, we do um, want to acknowledge this morning that all the stuff we search for, the satisfaction, the fulfillment, the contentment, um, that is so elusive, can only be found in you. Because that's how you've made us. You've made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so please would you help each one of us this morning to find that living water, that relationship with you for which we were made as we trust in Jesus and his gospel for ourselves. And as we head into this Christmas period and and the opportunities that it affords us, please would you use us so that others would find life in Christ too. And we pray this in Jesus' name.